some years ago when I was uh, a younger Christian, an old guy told me that if you ever wanted to know what was in a man's heart, you should listen to him pray. Don't listen to him talk. Don't listen to him preach. Listen to him pray. The problem is that generally when people pray, they're alone. Even when they pray out loud in rooms with other people, they don't often pray the same way that they pray when they're alone. What you just heard was the prayers of St. Paul, who is arguably one of the 10 brightest minds in the history of the world on any subject. And you got to go into a room with him while he prayed. And you heard a couple of themes. I'm going to pull out a couple of those themes in just a moment. The theme of virtue or goodness and the theme of knowledge. When I read Paul's prayers, there are maybe a couple handfuls in the Bible. The first thing I did was to write them on a whiteboard. And I noticed themes that kept recurring. No surprise. But then I noticed that things I was praying for, he was not. And things he was praying for, I was not. And then I began to wonder, if I want to really become more like that, do I need to change the way that I pray? So two of these themes that you've just heard, virtue or goodness, and knowledge come up in Paul's prayers. I pray that God would fill you with the knowledge of his will and with wisdom and with spiritual understanding so that you may live pure and blameless lives, so that you may please God in every way, so that you may be filled with the fruit of righteousness. Last week, we started talking about character and how um, it is so often missing, even in the Christian world. Uh, some time ago, my, uh, I had a person in our church. He was an older guy in his late 80s. And he was, um, he was a Christian. It, by the way, it wasn't this church, relax. Uh, but he was kind of cantankerous. He was highly opinionated, very dogmatic, wouldn't change the subject, and he wouldn't change his mind. He was pretty prejudiced. He was a miser. Um, other than that, he was great. And I was talking one day to a woman in the community that did not attend our church, and she called him by name. And she said, now, pastor, I know he's a Christian, but you need to know he is not a nice or a good man. Well, that was the first time that it ever occurred to me that someone could be a Christian and not be a good person. But I bet you know some. Don't you? People that by faith gave their lives to Jesus, asked him to forgive their sins, but they never went to work on their character. These things,
things do not change themselves, even in a Christian's life. A couple days ago, we were in this room for the funeral of a fellow named Zen Stewart. Zen was a um, veteran of the Korean War. He was a postmaster uh, for uh, 40 years. He worked at Anaconda Wire. But the thing everybody talked about was his character. Nobody talked about his degrees. Nobody talked about his years of service. Everyone said he was a good man. People in South Marion, again and again as they came by, he was a good man. And I thought of Jesus' words in Matthew 12, 35. The good person brings up good things from the good that is already in him. He's describing character. Vance Havner said, whatever's in the well comes up in the bucket. You can't have a character of one kind and behave consistently in another way. Sooner or later, you will live out of the kind of person you are, not the person you want others to think you are. So Peter is worried that Christians who can't gather, they can't look at each other's lives, they can't hold each other accountable, will somehow just accept Jesus as Savior and never develop their character. And so he says, add to your faith virtue. And to virtue, knowledge. And to knowledge, self-control. To self-control, add patience, endurance. And to patience, add godliness. To godliness, love for other Christians. And to that, add love for everybody. Do you hear what he's doing? But he's not talking about Actions only, he's talking about the deepest part of your soul. Develop these characteristics in the bottom of your soul so that when you respond in a crisis before you have time to think about it, that's what comes up. Character, said N.T. Wright, is a pattern of thinking and acting that runs all the way through our lives. Before you have a chance to think about it, you act out of your character. So develop those qualities in your life. Now, it's probably for good reason that Peter starts with virtue. The NIV calls it goodness. The New Living calls it moral excellence. Eugene Peterson calls it just good character. But King James just says virtue. It's a hard word. It's used four or five times in the New Testament, mostly by 
Peter, and so there's really nothing to get your hands on to figure out what this means. You have to go outside of the Bible to see how early Greek literature used it, and when you do that, you find it was used for all kinds of things. They used it to describe the moral qualities of their gods. They used it to describe the feet of a soldier when he was in battle. They used it to describe an athlete's control over his body while he was in performance. They used it to describe a teacher while she was articulating a discipline she knew very well. All of these things, said the Greek, was virtue. So for the Greeks, virtue was not simply moral excellence. It was functional. It could do something. Whenever something or someone performed in a way they were designed to perform with excellence, they were said to be a virtuous person. And whenever their performance was consistent with the moral quality of their lives, they were said to be a virtuous person. So a virtuous person was a nice guy who finished first. It was a guy you liked while he was beating you because he had the moral quality, but he also had the performance that matched it. Now, the other word that Peter uses is knowledge. Knowledge, like virtue, is a slippery term. Often it's thought of in circles like college church or uh, Indiana Wesleyan, Taylor, anyway, one of the colleges, it's thought of as mostly a cognitive or an intellectual capacity. So one cannot have knowledge apart from stimulating the intellect and filling it with facts. But this is not at all what Paul has in mind. One of the phrases that Paul uses in his prayer is that you would know what really matters. So knowledge wasn't just the grasp of something. It was the grasp of the most essential things. And it wasn't just cognitive. It was experience. You couldn't know something or you couldn't know someone unless you were in it. It wasn't something you read or memorized or taught. It was something you read, memorized, and taught while you were doing it. Because it was the practice of it that encouraged, it's why we call medicine and law practice. You don't take the courses now and then practice it. You learn it while you're doing it. That's closer to Paul's understanding and knowledge. The power of virtue is that it tempers knowledge. Let me put it like this. Until a person is a virtuous person, every other moral quality in your life will be distorted and turned inward upon yourself. Christians are a strange bunch of people. 
we hear these high moral injunctions about the good life and about the life of holiness. And then the moment we hear it, we pollute that vision by imagining how others would hold us in high esteem if we were only like that. And so instead of the goal of pleasing the Father, we end up with this goal of pleasing one another, improving our standing and performance in front of other people. And we can do this in the most subtle ways. And so whatever virtue we're working on, whether it's wisdom or courage or patience or generosity, until it is blessed with virtue, it will become self-serving. These will be like trophies that we have earned that help people admire us. But the moment those qualities hit virtue, they get turned outward onto other people. And this is why Paul said, I pray that you would know God so that you will be filled with the fruit of righteousness. He's talking about the way that we live for other people. Well, as I weighed these two qualities in my mind this week, I could see almost at once that they're supposed to complement one another. If we're a virtuous person, it should make us hungrier for knowledge. And if the knowledge we're pursuing is right and good, it would make us a better person. But people, this doesn't always happen. I grew up in a church that uh, was um, that was high on virtue. I'm not talking about a local church. I'm talking about the Wesleyan Church. The, 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 we were high on virtue, the moral qualities, but we did not emphasize education or knowledge. Um, and what it turned into was was just a little club of pious living where people had these kind of behaviorisms and these colloquialisms and the way that you measured someone's spirituality was to measure how many of these rules they had followed and how many of these colloquialisms they had memorized and the problem is if you valued the life of the mind you quickly outgrew churches like that. You had to go elsewhere. Then, because I loved the mind, I left it and, and I pursued knowledge and the opposite thing happened. Um, it, it made me condescending and critical. And you could, I found you could sit in a room with intelligent people and, um, and if you said something that the other people didn't know, it gave you a sense of preeminence. There was status. 
for a little. Can you see it? Suddenly, it really isn't about moral virtue, and it's not really about growing in knowledge. It's about one's image or reputation. Until I discovered that the only thing I know that is valuable is that which produces a good life. The smartest guy in the room is not always a good person. But that should not keep us from desiring more knowledge. That was early in the week. But by the end of the week, I got another picture of it. I began to ask myself, where is the place in the world right now where if you brought these two together, a passionate pursuit of knowledge, a mastery of one's skill and ability together with the moral excellence of a pure inner life, if you brought them together, where would they be most noticeable? And I think it would be at work. I, I talked a few years ago to our staff about this. It, there's something I noticed happening to me, and I think it happens to a lot of people. It's what I call the performance curve, and it goes like this. On the day you get hired in your new job, your performance will suddenly spike in at least four areas ambition or energy, you'll be enthusiastic about the job and ready to do everything you can. New skills or talent, you'll be learning as much as you can possibly learn so you can do that job better. Creativity, you'll be inventing things and innovating things and trying things and risk. You'll be taking risks that other people in that job will not take. Your performance will suddenly rise in at least those four areas for about a year or two. Then, after you've learned how to do your job, you will discover that you can do the same job with less energy. You'll discover that most of what you needed to learn, you have learned to do the job. And the longer you stay in the company or at the job, the less you're willing to risk because you have more on the line. You have more to lose. And suddenly, after a year or two, you see this sudden spike in these four areas start to level off. And then they start to tailor down. And many people spend the rest of their careers somewhere in between 
overachieving and getting fired. They're right in there. They mail it in. And all of the energy that we had for our work becomes sideways energy. Now the passion, the energy, the risk, the creativity is all had in things not pertaining to the job. I can do my job. So I started to wonder, what if Christians could rediscover their calling inside of their job? And we would say, we never know enough. I am as curious today as I was when I started, maybe more so. And my ability to do my work with excellence is way stronger than it was, but still there is something in me that wants even more. And it just seems to me like if you released a group of people into their workforces with that kind of blend, that passion to master something, to become the best at it with this strong inner moral character, mm, you would have something, wouldn't you? It's hard to see your faces when you have masks on. It's hard to see your face on home. Wouldn't you? Wouldn't that make a difference? So I guess that's my question right now. Are you still growing in your knowledge and grasp of your work? Or do you pretty much have this figured out? Is there a fire in your soul the way that there used to be? What if you had a plan for developing both your virtue and your knowledge of a subject, any subject, what would happen to your work? With that in mind, um, I've written three questions that I think will kind of guide this discussion. If you're home, your tendency is to put the laptop away and just go, let's go eat. Don't, please don't do that. It, I wish you would just close the laptop and talk to one another like some of you are. Those of you that are here in the sanctuary with me, the tendency is to stand up in a moment and to just completely change the subject, think about other things. But would you consider for a moment that when God put a call on your life to do whatever it is you're doing right now, he had that kind of passion that kind of excellence, that quality in mind. He envisioned you being 
better than most of your peers at that thing. So what is it? Here are the questions. The first one, we speak of knowledge and virtue. Think of someone uh, that you know who balances these two really well so one doesn't cancel the other. How do they do it? And if you were to grow in either knowledge or virtue, which one would you choose right now in your discussion? Which one would you say, probably need more of this? The second question is, what's one thing that you might do right now to grow in your knowledge of God? So that the rest of your work flows out of the knowledge of God. And what keeps you from doing that? Finally, and this is hard for some of you because you can be self-critical. Name something that you're good at, just naturally maybe, or something you've developed over the years. What are you really good at? And how might you use that to love God even more? I'm going to do this now as an act of worship to God. It's not for the audience. It's out of love for God. Maybe you'll identify that and maybe the people around you will be able to help you find things you could do to grow it. Father, oh, you've made us in your image. The, the perfect blend of both of these. The love of people and the ability to help them. Help us to grow in both. In your great name.